Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Kimberly St. Julian Varnin, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Claudia Sadowski-Smith, Associate Professor of English at Arizona State University. We're going to be discussing her new book, The New Immigrant Whiteness, Race, Neoliberalism, and Post-Soviet Migration to the United States. Claudia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Claudia, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I'd be glad to. So I have a PhD in English and uh, with a focus on multi-ethnic contemporary U.S. literature. And in my earlier work, especially my first book, Border Fictions, which came out in 2008, I studied literary and cultural representations of immigration and U.S. land borders with Mexico and Canada. And so I specifically focused on Asian and Latin American migration across those boundaries and fiction by Mexican and Canadian authors about those geographies as they have been transfigured by, transfigured by states and international forces. And I was looking at the 20th century, turn of the 20th and 21st centuries. And then the book took me to more comprehensive research on um, the same, the historical and contemporary migration across U.S. borders. And I realized that uh, Europeans had also crossed those borders and, uh, and been involved in, in movement um, across the borders that had not actually been studied system- uh, systematically, especially when it comes to the contemporary uh, moment. And um, I realized, you know, as I was doing this research, and actually it, it resulted in an article in American Quarterly, which is um, one of the leading article, uh, leading uh, journals in my field in American studies, I realized that there was the absence of, of, of any kind of inquiry into uh, the more contemporary movement from specifically what used to be the former um, Eastern uh, Eastern Bloc uh, comprised of the former Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, and of course the USSR. So that's how I got into my uh, into the current the subject of my second book um, that you just mentioned. And so coming into the book and can you tell us about what are you looking at? And it seems like your take on this post, Soviet diaspora migration is different from pretty much most of the work that's been done in the study of migrants and immigration in the United States. Yeah, so so as I mentioned, um, I am. I guess I didn't mention, but I'm not an actual expert in Russian and Eastern European studies. I wasn't trained in the field. I was trained in American studies, and and I'm coming at um, this migration from the point of view of how immigration to the United States has been studied, both within specifically in immigration studies, uh, US-based immigration studies, and also within American studies, US American studies itself. And and as you know, and I think it's pretty obvious, um, the focus has been on the largest immigrant groups who have come to the United States since uh, 1965, specifically, and the passage of the Immigration Nationality Act then. Uh, and those were groups from uh, Latin America and Asia. And I'm using Latin America as a short, shorthand term uh, to refer to the largest groups that come from Mexico and, and, and now Central America as well. So 
there really hasn't been um, a lot of attention to other groups, especially groups that would be considered uh, numerically smaller um, that have come to the United States. Um, and and being myself, having grown up in East Germany and, and coming to the United States in 1992, right after the dissolution of the former Eastern Bloc, I was very interested. I've always been paying attention to uh, the growth of this particular population. And as I said, um, people coming from various different countries of the former Eastern Bloc. And initially, I was I wanted to write a book that would look at all these different groups. And I realized that was just <laughs> too aspirational. And... Um, as I was looking at some census numbers and realized that um, about 2 million immigrants uh, would have identif identified themselves as having come from the former Eastern Bloc, but out of that number, the largest group, about 1 million, uh, are from the former USSR. So I, I realized I wanted to do a more realistic project, although it turned out to be <laughs> a very um, a uh, long project uh, anyway, but uh, and, and focus on one of those groups. And so I, I, I looked at people having come from the former USSR primarily since the late 1980s. And I wanted to see how that group has been received and represented in U.S. discourses, um, specifically cultural discourses that would have been influential on politics as well, and also um, what some alternative representations would have been. So, so my focus is really on representations of this group in the United States and not so much outside of the United States. So that's probably how uh, my work is different from that of other um, Russianists and Eastern Europeanists. And it's more in line with what um, American studies folks would be doing. So in your book, so, I, and it was actually kind of, surprising. kind of surprising. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. So that post-Soviet so post migrants represent a large number of migrants coming to the United States, particularly in the 90s, but also they represent a large number of migrants who are also undocumented in some cases. Right. So that's, so the focus of my book, what I'm trying to do is I'm, as I was saying, I was trying to see how has this group been received and represented, if at all. So there is a, as I said earlier, there is really a lack of, of any kind of systemic study of the, of, of this group. Um, if at all, there is there is work in specifically Jewish studies, um, and they focus and it focuses on, and also by uh, some Jewish um, assistance organizations, and it focuses on those who came as Jewish refugees in the early part of of the of the of the diaspora mainly the uh, the late 1980s the early 90s but of course people um, arrived smaller groups arrived since the late 1970s when the when the Soviet Union actually allowed people to leave specifically dissidents and those who could, who were able to come as Jewish refugees and and as your listeners know and as you know um, because of the um, the high intermarriage uh, in in the United in, in, in the USSR, not all of those coming as families as Jewish refugees were themselves Jewish, right? So um, there, are, there are there are numbers that show that about half of those uh, were um, family members that were not actually Jewish. But the focus has been on on this particular group and not on the larger diaspora, which has actually changed uh, throughout the 1990s. Where, um, where in the early 1990s, about 90% of people coming from the USSR would have come under these refugees, um, ethnic, I mean, religious re uh, refugee categories. But by the late 1990s, that number had dropped to about 40%. So I was interested in studying the larger diaspora and in really studying the, its, its ethnic uh, diversity uh, or national diversity and also its legal diversity. 
that's what I focus on in the book, and especially the, the, the latter part. I, the book is structured in such a way that every chapter looks at one different form of legal migration or arrival to the United States. So um, the argument I'm making is that maybe more than, than other um, um, immigrant groups, the um, post-Soviet migrants uh, actually participate in every available form of migration to the United States. So they come as um, highly skilled as refugees, or they have come as, as refugees, initially political refugees, but also religious refugees, and not just Jewish, Jewish refugees, but also as um, a Catholic, um, um, Catholic Ukrainians came and, and evangelical Christians. Um, and then as highly, and this is what I look at in my first chapter, as highly skilled in marriage um, mig- migrants. Uh, I look at that in my second chapter as adoptive migrants. I look at that in my, ch- in my third chapter. And as you mentioned, they, came, they would comment on so-called non-immigrant visas, usually um, visitor visas or sometimes um, student or work visas, and then overstay them. And, and so I, I also focus on that particular movement in, in chapter four. And, um, and I try to f- I'm trying to figure out in the book how arrival on these different legal categories then shapes the ways in which um, these migrants get to access um, U.S. citizenship rights in, in different ways and how it helps them or um, makes it more difficult to them to assimilate, <laughs> and I'm using that word in quotation marks, and to create collective and new collective migrant identities. And um, as you, in your question, you asked me about the number of um, or, or statistics on on post-Soviet immigrants who came uh, or who overstayed their visas. We generally know in immigration studies that about 40% of uh, the unauthorized population in the United States are so-called visa overstayers. And we know that the majorities come from uh, from Europe and, and Canada, but there really aren't numbers exactly on how many people come from various different European countries. Um, they are kind of grouped together. The numbers that we have, which uh, basically come from the Border Patrol and um, and talk about apprehensions or also in people who are not admitted to the United States. So it's it's really, it's difficult to know what the number is, generally speaking, um, but I mean, it is significant, and and I do talk about how in my interviews with uh, uh, post-Soviet immigrants, uh, several of them mentioned having personally known or having knowledge of people who who were visa overstayers from the former Soviet Union. So what I look at in in this book is I, I examine reality TV shows, memoirs by parents of adoption, and then also fiction by post-Soviet immigrant authors who came to the United States mainly as uh, children or, or adolescents about migration from the former Soviet Union and successor states since specifically the 1980s. And then I also look at the result of, of interviews that I conducted with migrants from the former Soviet Union in Arizona between uh, 2010 and 2011. And I can talk more about that, but specifically I was interested in their attitudes toward other um, immigrants specifically immigrants from Mexico that um, dominate uh, in Arizona. And, and at the time, to what discourses about Arizona's uh, Senate Bill 1070, which uh, at the time was the most um, you know, severe, um, would impose the most severe limitations on immigrants that uh, were deemed to be undocumented in this country. There's so many layers to your work, and your first chapter looks at the post-Soviet diaspora and television, and you choose Russian dolls and Dancing with the Stars as some of your prime examples. Can you tell us a little bit about those? 
Yeah. So in the first, so um, what I was trying to do is to see since the diaspora is, or this migration has been mentioned so rarely or is mentioned so rarely, um, where actually does it get represented? And so um, I initially I was looking at um, because I had realized, you know, having lived in this country since the 90s, that there were some representations of, of Russians, but not necessarily or, you know, uh, people from the former Soviet Union, but not necessarily immigrants. They, they just popped up in shows such as NYPD Blue, uh, you know, The Sopranos and 24 which 24 is in some shape and form still sort of on TV, they would always pop up as like these people that were sort of in the United States and they were villains and they were um, also associated with terrorists and Middle Eastern, you know, quote unquote terrorists as well. And so then when I, when I thought about these, these two shows, um, Dancing with the Stars, which is a, and, and Dosh and Dolls that are both reality TV shows, I realized what was happening was that he, these two shows were representing, um, Immigrants usually uh, one and usually 1.5, so so younger um, immigrants that had come as children or adolescents to this country with their family, probably um, uh, of Jewish background. Sometimes that, that wasn't specific, specified, but there were these little clues in both of these shows. Um, so that they were they were presenting these 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 uh, immigrants, their cast members, in very different ways. No longer as villains and terrorists, or even um, in stereotypical forms as mail order brides, but they were associating them with uh, sort of they, they were showing them as so, so to so to speak uh, predecessors of um, earlier European immigrants that had come to this country at the turn of the 20th century and had been associated uh, with these uh, mythologized, idealized ideas of upward mobility and assimilation. And so the idea that that, that was presented that these um, cast members were associate, associated with was that they would be expected to follow the same trajectory. And not only were they associated with these ideas of, of um, what emerged in the United States, this notion of a pan-European whiteness, which emerged after um, World War II, and which basically uh, means that, or is supposed to indicate that everyone of European background is just considered to be white. But more specifically, they were associated with uh, this emerging collective Russian quote unquote identity, which was equated to this ethnicized idea of whiteness, um, version of whiteness that was supposed to be very similar, at least in the, in the case of Russian dolls, to uh, the Italian an Italian American version of whiteness. So Russian Dolls, which was actually uh, scripted and written by two uh, post-Soviet immigrants, uh, was was explicitly modeled after uh, Jersey Shore, <laughs> and and uh, very similar notions of of uh, white immigrant ethnic immigrant identity were associated with these uh, cast members. Uh, so I thought. Those were really interesting ideas, and one other thing that came up in both of the shows that I that I also thought um, very noteworthy was that these immigrant immigrant casts were in different ways, uh, uh, either explicitly or not so explicitly, also set up very uh, set us apart from um, the majority of other contemporary non-white immigrants, particularly Mexican immigrants or Latinos and Latinas and Latins more generally. Uh, and sometimes even portrayed as being hostile toward these groups. So the idea that that was represented in, in these two shows was that the, the post-Soviet immigrants are very different uh, than other contemporary U.S. immigrants and that they are um, 
that they're following different trajectories um, that might not be available to other immigrants. So you have some really good examples of this in your discussion of Dancing with the Stars. And one of the particular, I guess, starring dancers of the show, Maxim Chernikovsky, yeah. and how he and how they portray him and his brother and other, uh, you know, post-Soviet migrants and their their stories and how their migration stories change depending on the market the show is being shown in. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I thought that was really interesting. Um, it's been it's been difficult. Um, to find so number one these shows do not ever focus on migration stories they just focus on the end result which is okay these these uh, folks are here now um, they've had to overcome some adversity but clearly by being on the show itself which is one of the ideas of reality tv is that um, if you're a cast member that might put you on a path toward upward mobility just by participating in a reality tv show so and of, of course, in the case of, of these particular Schmerkowski brothers, for example, that is pretty much true because they've been on the show for a long time. They get paid to be on the show. So they're portrayed as successful and uh, upwardly mobile uh, on the show and as having made it, as having achieved this American immigrant dream of, of immigrant success. So they're, they're actual, the actual difficulties that uh, the brothers went through after they arrived in the United States are actually downplayed and never mentioned, as is their um, their Jewish um, ethnicity. Their father um, is Jewish, and that um, doesn't really get mentioned on the show at all. Um, most of the information that I uh, was able to gather about the brothers, and specifically about Maxim, was because he also participated in a Ukrainian reality TV show, the Ukrainian version of The Bachelor, which apparently was widely watched in Ukraine, and, and, and on that show, his migration experience was portrayed very differently. So we did find out he, did, he was able to talk about all these difficulties that his family underwent. The fact that his father, who had been um, uh, um, you know, um, well-trained in, in, in the Soviet Union, which is one of the um, actually um, the typical characteristics of this diaspora, that uh, both women and men who come from the former Soviet or have who have come from the former Soviet Union are highly trained and well educated, especially compared to the uh, um, other contemporary U.S. immigrants. So, but upon arrival in the United States, um, several of them or a majority of them have problems uh, working in those professions, and they end up um, moving downward. Uh, economically. And that's exactly what happened to Shmerkovsky's father as well. He worked as a dishwasher and the family was poor. And so Maxim talks about how he was, when he was 14, he opened his own dance studio. That dancing was one of the things that um, that he, just as many other cast members on the show from the former uh, USSR, had been engaged in, 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 in his case, in what became U- or in Ukraine. And uh, and that it was one of the skills that he realized he had that he could really um, use in the United States to to make a living and help his his parents and his family to make a living. And that's really how uh, his his love of dance uh, developed and he made it into a profession. He still talks about this in interviews today, that it was just one of the skills that he had and that he felt like he needed to develop in the United States. Um, One of the points I make in this chapter um, is that because of the influx flux of uh, post-Soviet immigrants in the United States since, since specifically in the late 1980s, we have had this explosion in international ballroom dancing, with which is a, 
a European form of ballroom uh, dancing rather than the U.S. form in the United States. We've had um, these shows, um, Dancing with the Stars being one of them, um, uh, on, on TV and also um, um, the, a, a growth in ballroom studios. So there's been, that's one measurable already, one measurable impact that this migration has had on the culture, on, on actually reconfiguring the culture in the United States. Interesting. And so you, you touch on this in your answer about the question about Maxime, how his father had was had this highly skilled background when he was in the Soviet Union and he came over and how that kind of changed once he was in the United States. In your second chapter, you have this interesting look at skilled, highly skilled migrants to America. And then you also look at the women who receive marriage visas. And so can yes. you talk about those two groups and their differences and their experiences once they get to the United States? Right. And so this is this this goes back to this one of these main arguments I'm trying to make in this book, which is the assumption in immigration studies is is that um, the ways that that shared collective characteristics uh, of of an immigrant group understood to be uh, a group that has that comes from uh, a specific area uh, of of other you know of the world, and therefore is nationally or ethnically um, formed. That's that's how that group um, coheres. So the idea is is that these shared um, collective um, features, such as you know education and and um, skill sets, but also the ways in which they're racialized in the United States based upon their national origin or ethnic origin, uh, that those um, characteristics are important for or shape the ways in which this group assimilates to the United States or develops um, identities, collective cultural identities that sometimes take on transnational forms. So because um, the United, the, this particular diaspora has been understood, as I was trying to explain earlier, to be collectively white, associated with notions of whiteness that even downplay uh, Jewish components, um, even though, of course, if one thinks <laughs> uh, geographically speaking, most of the, uh, the earlier immigrants that came to the United States from uh, what is now what then became the uh, the Soviet Union and was then the Russian Empire, or more specifically the Pale of Settlement within the, the Russian Empire, were Jewish, were speaking Yiddish, and assimilated to a Jewish American identity that had already been formed by Central Americans, those those coming from Central uh, um, Europe, specifically Germans, um, and and to actually think about these these more um, contemporary immigrants as following in the footsteps of those immigrants would actually make more sense. But that's not what uh, these these representations are doing. They're thinking of them as being more alike, um, akin to, uh, to Italian-Americans, right? So, so these two features, uh, thinking about immigration studies, these two features would set um, this particular diaspora very much apart from other contemporary U.S. immigrants who are racialized as non-white mainly and who who don't necessarily have the same back, um, highly skilled, highly educated backgrounds. But what I'm trying to do is in this book is I'm trying to see how are these collective features complicated by the ways in which um, particular segments of the diaspora arrive on different legal status. How does that actually impact how they assimilate and create um, cultural identities? And so my second chapter that you're asking me about is is one um, that came out of these interviews I conducted with over 30 immigrants in, in Arizona. And what I didn't realize until I conducted the interviews is that the majority of people that I was talking to fell into two different groups. 
And those were the highly, those who came as highly skilled immigrants. Uh, I didn't get to talk with anyone who arrived on, a, on an H-1B visa and would be working in private business, but I talked to people who came on one uh, student form, student visa, form of student visa, a, a J-1, and were working in, um, in this particular, actually in, in, in my institution, were working in an institution of higher education, but had come on J-1s pre, um, previously, entered the United States on J-1s. And then um, the second group I talked to were the marriage migrants, so women who had arrived on what's called a fiancé visa, uh, a K-1 visa. And um, what I realized is that um, these two groups had very different trajectories in the ways in which they then, uh, you know, settled in the United States, assimilated here, and and were able to or not able to also create um new cultural identities. So marriage migrants had way more restricted access to economic forms of citizenship, even though they were, the ones I talked to all had university university degrees and work experience in the former Soviet Union and, or in successor states. And um, they uh, and they obviously were, they, they were marrying uh, men in the United States that were middle class or upper class, uh, of middle or upper class background. They were able to immediately work in the United States because they were um, they received uh, green cards, uh, temporary green cards, and then eventually uh, green cards or, or citizenship. Um, and uh, but they still uh, had a very difficult time finding uh, jobs that were um, uh, suitable to that background. They never actually did. They they worked in unskilled uh, service occupations or they were creating their own uh, businesses. And uh, they were very much interested in creating a sort of a, at least a Ukrainian or Russian speaking environment for their children and uh, faced greater difficulties connecting to other post-Soviet immigrants who had arrived in other legal categories. And uh, they were, were very much more often considered returning home because they were unhappy, uh, much more unhappy in the United States than uh, the, those who had come on highly skilled visas. Um, specifically, because they had married men um, who did not speak um, Russian or Ukrainian, that the majority of, of women I talked to had come from Russia or Ukraine, um, they were not able to pass on the language uh, um, and sometimes the culture to their children. And uh, they also just didn't feel like they fit in as well. Whereas, um, and they were also subjected to these, these very high, um, high expectations of complete assimilation to middle-class whiteness. And that often occurred at the cost of their own and also their children's uh, bicultural identities. Whereas the, uh, the highly skilled migrants that came and that I talked to, they immediately, even though they came on, uh, you know, rather into rather precarious positions that were very often limited to a particular time period, uh, the J-1 visa is only limited to um, five years, I believe, and they were... Uh, you know, they were as many other contingent um, um, faculty in um, and the universities, they were underpaid, but yet they were immediately, because this particular, these positions were putting them on a path to middle-class existence, they were immediately racialized as white. Uh, they didn't, they weren't really as interested in, in creating an ethnic community. And they also didn't necessarily uh, maintain the same transnational connections that uh, the, the uh, marriage migrants um, had, and they weren't as interested in returning. So I, I thought those were interesting findings. They, they really are. It was really interesting. You talk about how some of the women who received these these marriage visas, how they're kind of ostracized even by the highly skilled women 
who are counting yes. on these visas, that there's some tension there between those two groups of women. Exactly. Or even other women uh, that had come, I talked to somebody who had come um, on a student visa in order to get, this was, I think it was actually an F1 in her case, but to um, to uh, conduct graduate um, studies in the United States. And she she said that she was uh, basically purposefully staying away from, from women who had come as marriage migrants. Um, there was this, this this idea that they were they did not come in quote unquote the right way, and they only they only chose to get married in order to um, enter the United States. So yeah, and 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 the women themselves that I talked to, the marriage migrants, would say that it was very it was much more difficult uh, to them to make connections to these um, couples that had come together, where often the, the men had come on highly skilled visas and they had brought their wives or. Um, where they were saying they still have a community that seems as though it is very much, you know, still a, a Russian or Ukrainian speaking community. And they themselves were just not able to create those kinds of um, communities themselves because they had men, they had husbands who not only uh, did, did not speak any of these languages, but also were not interested in speaking them. And sometimes actually opposed um their wives speaking those like, speaking either Russian or Ukrainian to their children. And yet yeah, that, that was one of the sadder aspects of that chapter. When you talk about these women and they're, they're wanting to go home because they can't even share that culture with their children because of the situation with them with their husbands. So it kind of mm-hmm. segues into your third chapter, which honestly was one of the hardest chapters to read when you're discussing adoption and the transnational adoption of children from the post-Soviet space. Can you give us some some examples and talk about your argument in that chapter, but also the experiences of these children? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that is exactly, that was also my experience writing this chapter. In fact, this was the first piece I wrote um, for the book. I mean, and it appeared in, in slightly different form as an article. And I remember not being able to sleep for several nights <laughs> after uh, when I was doing this research, because I, I really honestly didn't know. Um, I hadn't really, I didn't have a sense of the depth of, 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 of some of these issues that adoption um, has actually brought, has brought with it. Um, so generally speaking, um, the adoption scholarship in this country has looked mainly at the two largest that what used to be the two largest groups of adoptees that came uh, from China, and, and China is still the leading country of adoption to this day, and from South Korea. South Korea is the country from which the United States has, has adopted um, for the, the longest. And uh, the adoption scholarship has, has really focused on issues of race and, and the racialization of these adoptees in the United States. Uh, one of the main foc- foci of the scholarship has been to try and, and, and tell parents, adoptive parents, who are mostly, the U.S. adoptive parents are mostly white or consider themselves white and middle class or upper middle class, to, to realize that their children would be racialized, not as white, but, you know, most likely as Asian in this country, and to help them prepare for that by exposing them to what is very often called in the scholarship, quote unquote, birth culture. So um, this culture would be, uh, so basically parents would be expected and adoption agencies tell parents to do this as well to expose their adopted children to, let's say, Chinese dance and Chinese language and and other forms of Chinese culture. In the the case of adoptees from Russia and Ukraine, 
um, those two countries opened um, uh, opened themselves up for a transnational adoption in 1991, and they were also they were the largest sender um, sending countries for adoption uh, f- throughout uh, the second largest sorry the second largest uh, um, sending countries throughout the 1990s, and then. Uh, even in the contemporary period, um, I was I just looked up the most recent numbers, and Ukraine is still one of the leading uh, ten countries, origin countries for adoption. Whereas, uh, of course, Russia closed the door to adoption in 2013 um, in the Magnitsky Act, and yet that's something that's come up recently as well. Of course, um, with the invocation of our current uh, administration in Russia. But anyway, um, so what happened uh, with uh, the immigration of those children is, and that I could really trace in, in these three um, memoirs of adoption that I selected to discuss. There are many, many more. There's a search in these, there's been a search in these memories and the night in these memoirs in the 1990s. Uh, and I read many of them, but I um, uh, narrowed it down to these three is what I, what I could see in there is that because these adoptive parents are, we're selecting children because parents get to choose um, where they want it, more or less, they, they, where they want to adopt from. And these parents were choosing uh, Russia or Ukraine specifically because they felt that the children there were white, and so white like them, and so that if they adopted those kinds of children into their families, they would create families whose members would look as though they would be biologically related. And, and so therefore... The idea for many of these parents is that uh, it would be easier for them to um, make these children part of their families, to not have to deal with intrusive questions from the outside, uh, and uh, and, to, and to create more successful adoptions. Um, and to the extent that in these in these three memoirs, uh, the authors would move from a position where it was very important for them to select healthy children of course, and that would be one of the priorities and that they would even uh, reject referrals for children where there were questions about the health status or there wasn't enough information um, supplied, which is also very, very typical for the adoption process. Um, they went from that position uh, to a position throughout this various you know, periods of several years where they would actually choose children. They would privilege children for their whiteness over their health status. And they would actually, one of the authors actually um, rejected a referral in a hospital in Russia for a child that did not look, uh, quote unquote, white enough. And the, the author specifically <laughs> states this. And that was uh, that was very shocking to me that that um, a white um, outward exper- appearance that could be racialized in that way would be so important for these parents that they would be they would be writing about this adoption process as one in which uh, they were customers who would have the right to select these healthy or more importantly sometimes white children um, in order to forge these kinds of families and and I, I I traced in the chapter how these these narratives are really are really moved away from the more traditional narrative of adoption that U.S. parents have um, have used in other memoirs or that's been used, generally speaking, in this country to think about transnational adoption, where it is really supposedly a, a humanitarian act. It's about saving the children, right? Saving, in quotation marks, the children uh, from their fates and from poverty or from war or from famine 
or abuse, here in these memoirs, it is really about the parents. It's about the parents who have the right to make these kinds of choices and, um, and who also have the right to, um, to reject referrals. Uh, they have the right to, um, to actually um, end terminate adoptions and so on and so forth, solely based on the question of uh, what they perceive as a racialized, um, or, or the race of their children. Uh, and, and so what I speculate in, in the chapter is that maybe this, this attitude then might explain why we have seen such, such a relatively high number of abuse cases and specifically death uh, of um, uh, adoptees from Russia, um, specifically at the hands of their U.S. adoptive parents, uh, which, of course, was also one of the factors that, that led to the passage, at least um, officially, to the, passage, to, the, to the termination of adoptions from from Russia, it's it's a really interesting chapter, and uh, it really pulls on your heartstrings when you see these adoptive parents kind of talking about, I guess, this marketplace for children, and you you it really touches upon your argument about the impact of neoliberalism and how you see it in the way adoptions have changed during that time. So right. looking at the way in which, in which I guess one more point to make about that that I haven't been able to make yet is also the ways in which the notions of whiteness in the United States as, you know, com- uh, uh, com- encompassing everyone who is here and has European background, that this particular notion now has been globalized to such an extent that uh, people outside of the United States who are residents of, you know, European countries or countries that are thought to be strictly European uh, which they're not, right? Like Russia really isn't, but that that these residents are already uh, um, racialized as white even before they come to this country. That's a big change too in the ways in which um, racialization, race, and migration have uh, interacted in the U.S. context. So we now have this idea that residents of the former USSR or of many parts of the former USSR are already white and therefore they become these um, privileged objects of migration. They, they are desirable objects for migration and they, they get to migrate within what are rather privileged categories, specifically as adoptees. It's, that's a very privileged category of, adop- of, of, of immigration where adoptive children since uh, the, the early 2000s are, um, become, immediately become uh, citizens once the adoption in the United States is, is completed. So there is this real shift in the notion of what whiteness means as well, and it's and it works as a privilege for for these for um, marriage and adoptive migrants, but it also works, and this is I think what I've been trying to say. The flip side of that is that there is this heightened expectation on uh, marriage migrants and an adoptive migrants to totally assimilate immediately, or and and to uh, and to uh, not think about or uh, take into consideration their cultural, national, ethnic differences and their linguistic differences. And that then impedes, in the, in the, in the case of marriage migrants, the development of, of bicultural identities and transnational identities. And in the case of adoptees, they're not even given the option that is given to other adoptees of like exposure to anything resembling their birth culture at all, right? So they don't, in the case of Artyom Savielev, Savelyev, with whom I start the chapter, and um, of course it became a very um, prominent case in 2011, where his mother had adopted him in the United States and then just sent him back, in quotation marks, to, to Russia. He had been adopted, he was seven years old, 
into the United States. And after six months, when she sent him, when when she sent him back, he couldn't even speak Russian anymore. Right. So that there is this complete disregard for the difference of these children when they come to the United States because of this strange association with whiteness. And so looking at your fifth chapter, when you're looking at the diaspora in a comparative perspective, do these post-Soviet migrants, or do they understand that they have that layer of whiteness that like Latino and Central American immigrants don't necessarily have? Are they aware of that? And does that shape how they think of themselves versus the the dark-skinned POC migrants? Yeah, so that's that's really what I wanted to get at in this chapter too, that specific question, because as I was saying earlier, the the um the discourses that are available are just assume, you know, that that because they're white, that these immigrants are completely different from other contemporary immigrants, uh, and that they might even be hostile to them, because I didn't get to talk about this yet, but uh whiteness uh historians who have um trace the development and evolution of whiteness in this country for immigrants from, from Europe, that's one of the main, uh, the main assertions that they have made, that um, they were, that, that, that folks from Ireland, Italy, uh, Southern Europe and, and Eastern Europe were able to completely and fully enter into whiteness by World War II because they were, um, they were always having to set themselves in opposition to, at the time, African-Americans mainly and there's much smaller number of Chinese immigrants as well, and they're having and 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 some of this opposition uh, also would then manifest itself in outright hostility and participation in anti-immigrant, uh, for example, uh, support of anti-immigrant legislation such as the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act by um, by Irish uh, by I'm sorry yeah by by Irish laborers and specifically uh, the unions, so that that they could only achieve whiteness through opposition to folks considered non-white. So that's what I wanted to get at in these interviews. Is this really, can we really think about immigrants from uh, the former Soviet Union in the same way? And what I found, so I asked these immigrants specifically about their attitudes toward SB 1070, which was at the time um, being passed in Arizona and was making undocumented um, residents or um, in the country, uh, a, a state crime. And so it would allow state authorities to uh, detain or arrest immigrants on the suspicion of them have, of them being undocumented in the country. Um, and what I found is that that the vast majority of my interviewees, and I interviewed um, around 30 participants, uh, were not supportive of the passage of this legislation. They did. They felt ambivalent about it, and that's mainly because yes, they did feel that they would be exempted from this from this legislation. They did understand that the legislation was targeting and profiling uh, Latino uh, and Latina and Latinx in this country, and specifically uh, Mexican immigrants. They did understand that, um, but they also um, and and they did understand to a certain extent. I mean, some some folks said things like you know. Uh, I'm white, so I wouldn't be stopped. They did understand that they they have this privilege of whiteness, but they also did bring up that um, they they wouldn't be affected by this law because they had entered under different legal conditions, mainly as documented immigrants. That was very important uh, uh, for specifically for those who had come on on K two uh, fiancé visas, and they would they would very much make that argument uh, about well, we had to go through all these these problems and we were documented, but they still felt um, empathetic and sympath- toward 
Mexican migrants who would be uh, who would be targeted. Um, primarily because of two reasons. One was because they said, we are immigrants. And some one person even said, we're always going to be immigrants, even if we're white. We're still immigrants. Um, they, are, they, they did talk about, sometimes I had to prod them a little bit, but they did talk about incidences of xenophobia against them as well. Um, and uh, not to say that they were, not, not in order to make the point that they were being um, marginalized in the same way as Mexican immigrants, they realized that that was not the case, but just to to say that there was a grounds for empathy um, because uh, xenophobia in the United States does not stop necessarily at people who are racialized as non-white. But also the second um, uh, ground for empathy was that they understood from having grown up in, in um, the Soviet Union and then some folks talking about present-day Ru- Russia that this kind of intrusion by the state into the lives of, uh, of, of everyday people and specifically those considered different and racialized uh, uh, different was something that they had had experience in the past and they just didn't think that should be a feature of a democratic country like the United States. So on those, uh, so, so what I think the conclusion I drew was that because most of these immigrants that I talked to, and I did talk to, by the way, I didn't get to mention this, but I did talk to three immigrants who would not have been, who were not racialized in the United States as white because of the background they had as either um, native Aboriginal people in in, in Russia, uh, uh, Jewish, being of Jewish background, and one person being Armenian, and they were talking about how in the United States they were they were racialized as Asian or Jewish or or Middle Eastern, quote unquote. But the majority of the folks I talked to um, would have been or thought that they were racialized as white. And, and they under, I think they understood that. But um, they, uh, because they were, because I, the conclusion I reached, this is not something they said, but that's what I reached from the interviews, is because the majority of people were racialized securely as white, they didn't have to, as turn of the century Euro- European immigrants, struggle to be. Uh, seen as white or integrated into whiteness, so they didn't necessarily have to have the same level of opposition to raci- to p- folks racialized as non-white. Um, and and of course, when one looks at the scholarship about uh, turn of the century European immigrations, and I was looking specifically as looking at the work of, of Eric Goldstein, who looks at um, immigrants from the Pale of Settlement. Uh, one of the among others, but those who uh, racialized as Jewish Americans in the United States or became Jewish Americans in the United States, there was always this level of uh, resistance to uh, violence against uh, those racialized as not as non-white, specifically African Americans, uh, and much more of a, of an empathy toward uh, other immigrant groups and the African Americans. Um, that's so. So, in some ways, that particular scholarship on the emergence of of, of whiteness among European immigrants also overstates its case in some in some cases. So I was able to see that there were some um, sort of continuities that one um, that were there in the in the sense that these immigrants felt ambivalent and empathetic, but also uh, a change in in in, in the way in which um, these immigrants were much more securely the majority of them securely attached to whiteness. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our yes, listeners the, about your book? Con- yeah, so the conclusions that I was trying to reach with this book and why I wrote it to begin with was to to show that this group is not actually um, all that different or uniquely different from other contemporary uh, immigrants. They're dealing with some of the same issues. They're dealing with changes in the way whiteness works. Um, uh, they're dealing with um, 
uh, uh, diminished access to uh, to um, benefits that a welfare state and in an economy um, that worked a lot better when <laughs> immigrants came at the turn of the 20th century, uh, and that eventually allowed those immigrants and their descendants to, um, or you know a majority of them to actually embark on uh, upward mobility, that these contemporary immigrants do not have access to the same kinds of, um, of, of uh, welfare benefits and to the same kinds of economic opportunities. And so they're, they're, and they're also dealing with the rise in anti-immigrant um, sentiment and policy. And so I was, that's what I was trying to show specifically in my last chapter, that I think we need to move beyond um, seeing these these immigrant groups and these stark uh, differences, and to really work toward a more um, uh, integrative uh, immigration rights movement that could also be open enough and uh, to post-Soviet immigrants or immigrants from Eastern Europe more generally, and that these immigrants themselves would feel that they would be welcome in it and need to work in it as well, because as we've seen. Uh, especially with um, the um, the uh, after our most recent election, um, the discourses that in the last couple of decades have focused so much anti-immigrant discourses have focused so much on divisions among documented and undocumented immigrants, targeting undocumented immigrants and making the case that everybody should become an illegal way. Those discourses have been supplanted by very explicit um, attacks on all forms of migration including highly skilled migration that's and and as we see of course family migration family reunification so in that sense um those coming uh from the former soviet union and other parts of eastern europe and that make up such a large portion of contemporary migrants um they they uh, i want them to be um to be seen in such a way that they might be more integrated into um um our struggle for immigrant rights in this country, that they themselves see it, but that scholarship also enables that perspective. Wow, that gives us so much to think about. I mean, in academia, but also outside of the academy. So, well, Claudia, we've taken up a good bit of your time today. So thank you for being on the show. And before thank you for we having go, me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> good. And before we go, I have to ask you the famous New Books Network question. What are you working on now? I'm actually uh, working on a special issue for a uh, another American studies journal called 20th Century Literature, or it's mainly interested in American literature. And what we're trying to, we call it um, literature, a post-socialist literature in the United States. <laughs> and uh, we're looking at the uh, cultural um, productions of a variety of immigrant authors from the former Eastern Europe together. So um, folks from the former Yugoslavia, USSR, Bulgaria and Romania, uh, who have um, produced mainly um, fiction, poetry, and and uh, and also theater in this country, and have achieved you know acclaim, and also their work's been translated. But the but this particular work has not been looked at as a cohesive body of work, and that's what we're trying to myself and a co-editor, Iona Luca, who works in uh, Taiwan actually and is Romanian. We're trying to theorize um, commonalities between these various uh, Eastern European group, immigrant groups and their cultural productions in this country. That sounds really interesting. It seems like you're getting more and more into the Russian and Eurasian space. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can't help it. <laughs> well, Claudia, thanks for being on the show today. I think it was a treat for both me and the listeners. Thank you so much. 